I've been working so hard that I, I, I get a little run down. You know? I, I know exactly <laughs> how that feels. <laughs> okay, so open to the wrong side always. That's how I work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let me get this recording. Is that actually the the directional mic, or is this uh, no, the mic? This, this that's is the, the mic. Yeah, that oh, actually picks oh. up more chest resonance than anything. Oh, okay. And then that one just for room, so that you have a backup in case for particularly on transcriptions, you want to have two. So you're recording two channels. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So we'll just we'll start with the easy stuff and okay. work to the really hard stuff. All right. <laughs> so I'm gonna put this on my feet. Sorry. Oh, okay. I don't know why I suddenly got cold. <laughs> just like. Oh. <laughs> right, great. And that's recording and that's on. Perfect. Okay. Okay. So today I'm here with Suzanne Chani. Excellent. And where were you born? I was apparently, although I wasn't, you know, I can't really physically remember, but I was born in an army base outside of Indianapolis hmm. called uh, Fort Myers. Mm -hmm. And so I'm registered in Indianapolis, Indiana. No. because that was the closest uh, known place. My father was a doctor in the army, so he was stationed there at Fort Myers, and uh, and that's where I was born in 1946. Okay, and and so that's the, what did your parents do questions? <laughs> <laughs> My mom was a homemaker, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I'm one of six children. Oh, wow. Yeah, so my dad uh, was of Italian heritage, mm -hmm. and the Italians are very, uh, let's say, unless he had met my mother in Iowa, he probably wouldn't have ever gotten married because Italian parents are very proprietary and don't want their children to escape. So um, he met my mom in Iowa when he was uh, working as an orthopedic. He was doing a special... Uh, the Steinler Clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, so he, he did a lot of uh, pre-practice. I don't think he started his uh, independent uh, profession until he was, uh, well, 32. Wow. Yeah, a lot of medical. He went to Harvard Medical School when he was, well, he went to Harvard when he was 15. Wow. Yeah, and mm -hmm. he always l regretted that in a way because he was too young mm -hmm. and he couldn't, you know, he didn't have a normal university experience. Mm -hmm. uh, then he went to Harvard Medical School. Uh, then he went and studied an additional, I don't know, 10 years, a long time. And he met my mom and married at the age of 32. Mm -hmm. My mom was seven years younger. Uh, and they moved to Boston mm -hmm. and uh, started a big family. Oh. My mom was German and English. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. All right, so as a kid, did you read a lot? Yes, I did. <laughs> uh, you know, we were a very studious family. <laughs> uh, and I just took that for granted. You know, my, my Aunt Loretta, who lived near us, had gone to Radcliffe. And, you know, my Aunt Loretta. So, you know, we grew up in kind of a milieu of education and pride in education. And, uh, you know, near a city, so I had a lot of exposure to uh, you know, to Harvard. You know, we went to Cambridge every mm -hmm. every weekend because my my grandfather lived there. Mm -hmm. um, but it's funny you ask that question because when I did an interview for early admission to Radcliffe, I was asked that question, and I thought it was a joke. I thought it was so obvious. 
<laughs> that I just wouldn't answer it. <laughs> I'm like, what are you kidding? <laughs> so I flunked the interview. <laughs> so now I know better. Yes, I, I did read a lot. Oh, good. Yeah. Excellent. All right, and what were your sort of earliest musical experiences? Well, my first, uh, you know, I, I guess I was transported by listening to music when I was young. You know, I remember we had a phonograph in the house, and uh, my mom put on a, a, the Tennessee waltz, mm -hmm. and I would just start dancing. I mean, it was instantaneous. Uh, I, I was just lifted out of myself when I heard music. Um, then she brought a Steinway piano into the house. Mm -hmm. And my two older sisters were given lessons. And I wasn't. But I found that I could, you know, go up to the piano and play their lessons by ear. And so that caused a bit of attention. <laughs> uh, and they got me a teacher. But I didn't like him. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, he wanted me to learn pop music, how to take a melod melodic, uh, a melody, mm -hmm. and dress it up mm. with harmonies. And I wanted classical music. And I wanted to learn to read. So I stopped playing by ear and taught myself to read music by knowing one thing, and that is where middle C was on the piano, like under the S in Steinway, mm -hmm. and where middle C was on the score paper. And mm -hmm. from that, you could figure out the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So until I was in high school, I, I did this on my own which meant that I had really no fundamentals. I, I did it by a combination of reading and listening. And by the time I, I auditioned for a new piano teacher when I was uh, in high school, I went at, into Longy School of Music in Cambridge. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what a quarter note was. I didn't know what a scale was. I made it all up. You know, I, I figured it out, but I didn't literally understand it. Mm -hmm. I knew that the, you know, one note was longer than another. I could tell that because I'd see the note and I knew what the music sounded like. And, you know, so you, you got a feel. Mm -hmm. So it was a real reckoning for me to audition and I thought I was great, mm -hmm. and she thought I was terrible. <laughs> so I had to start all over again. Well, well it sounds like you had the tonality down, and <laughs> I guess that worked from there. <laughs> um, yeah. And when did you first start composing your own works? Well, even when I was little. I mean, mm -hmm. I lived at the piano. Mm -hmm. So I was considered, my, my sisters to this day claim that I overtook the piano and didn't allow them to develop their own <laughs> musical, you know, skills. And I thought, uh, I thought when I closed the door to the living room that nobody could hear me. <laughs> and nobody else was playing the piano, so I would lock myself in there and play and feel very private. Mm 
it was only years later that I realized that people could hear me playing. <laughs> Had I known that, I, I wouldn't have been so vulnerable and so intimate you know, with my music. Uh, so I forgot what the question was. No, no, that's actually, <laughs> what, what were your first compositions? Oh, yes. So, you know, I, I always, you know, thought of myself, I, even when I didn't know what I was doing, I got music paper and I scribbled things on it. Did it mean anything? Maybe not, because I didn't, I wasn't that educated yet in the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. But I figured it out for myself and I would, you know, I was in love with Chopin. Mm -hmm. and, and other, you know, piano composers, Bach, Mozart, mm -hmm. and I was playing them. And so, yeah, I, I did always think of myself as a composer. Ah. Yeah. Now, did you always have an interest in electronics? I think, you know, when you, you asked, you trigger these initial thoughts. And <laughs> um, when I was very young, I had chronic earaches. Mm-hmm. So when we went swimming at the pool, I always had to wear a bathing cap and earplugs. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that. And I, my first like sonic experience that I found overwhelming was when I took off the bathing cap, took out the earplugs and heard the water. <laughs> and those high frequencies and that magical, you know, just dance of the sound again was transporting and I think that was my first experience with sonic mm -hmm. consciousness as opposed to you know traditional music context mm -hmm. and I relate that to my when when I discovered electronic music it triggered again that joy mm -hmm. that I had felt then and you know that makes a lot of sense I gotta make a little note there <laughs> and so now here's a question I ask everyone we interview do you remember the first time you physically saw a computer uh, yes hmm? I do um, you know when I was at Wellesley College and I, it was a very small music department and my senior year I think it was senior year we became the sister school of MIT and MIT became you know, hmm. our brother school and uh, as a kind of social event, we were invited to an evening, you know, meeting at MIT with a professor mm -hmm. who was using his budget. I don't remember his name, but we went into his computer room, mm -hmm. and he had a budget intended for something else, and he was using it to make a tone on the computer. Mm -hmm. So that was my first experience of computer <laughs> and, you know, musical experience mm -hmm. with the computer. I'll almost guarantee we either have the computer or we have the uh, documentation on the computer. Of MIT uh, yeah, in 19, well, let's see, I graduated in 68. So it was mm. sometime in 67. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, we have, a, since we were originally located in Boston, uh, oh. So much stuff from MIT funneled to us. Wonderful. And there's actually sort of their archivist of all that stuff, uh, Barry Verco. Uh, oh, okay. Good guy. Hard to get a hold of. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's kept everything, apparently. Wonderful. So now I have to go and find that. <laughs> It'll be well, you, you know, when I went to graduate school, mm -hmm. I came out 
to UC Berkeley mm -hmm. just by chance. You know, they gave me a fellowship. No. So instead of going to Paris like everybody else mm -hmm. with Nadia Boulanger, because mm -hmm. that was the you know expectation for a composer. Yeah. And I was accepted there, but they didn't give me money. Mm -hmm. Berkeley gave me money. I came out here, and of course, it was the absolute perfect perfect <laughs> place to be because I I could go to Stanford, mm -hmm. right, to do their uh, artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you're talking about computers. So, oh yeah, you know that was computer oh, yeah. land, and that comes back in here too. Oh good. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, actually, this will allow me to jump ahead a little bit. Uh, when you were at at Berkeley. Were you interacting with the Mills people at all? Well, there were no people, per se, at Mills. There was mm -hmm. the studio. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was not, at that time, connected to the curriculum of Mills. It was housed there. Mm -hmm. So the San Francisco Tate Music Center was housed there. And I, I practically lived there mm. because... Uh, you know, for $5 an hour, but uh, honestly, nobody ever collected money. So, uh, who who were the people there? Um, uh, San Francisco Music Center would have been, was that Terry Riley? I came after all those guys left. So, mm -hmm. there was nobody, I, I got there in about, I don't know, 68, 69. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know about it. You know, who was going to tell me about <laughs> it? I was at UC Berkeley in a graduate music department that knew nothing about electronic music. Mm -hmm. And one day I was out in the, you know, the quad and throwing a football with somebody and and he said, oh, do you know about Mills? And I thought, no, you know, what is it? And I found out it just by chance. So I would, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I got a car because, um, I needed a car to, you know, to get to the places I needed to go, mm -hmm. which was Stanford and uh, Mills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, all right, great. We're so far along, and okay. we've been jumping around, and I love it. Oh, sorry, I can <laughs> no, no, it's great. Down, it actually, but I do tend to like. No, no, no. Jump around because it actually helps. Because <laughs> <laughs> it actually—that's how you get to the uh, the. You overcome the inabilities of the interviewer, and every interviewer has inabilities. <laughs> um, what was the first synth you remember physically playing? Well, it would have been at Mills College. Mm -hmm. And what they had there was the 100, the Buka mm -hmm. 100. And I understand from something I read recently that Maggie Payne uh, mentioned is that it was the first one he built. Could mm -hmm. that be? Oh yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the one I played. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> that's good. That's a good pedigree. That's <laughs> right at the beginning. <laughs> um, when did when did you first meet Buqua? I met him uh, in about well, let's see. I was at graduate school from '68 to '70 in Berkeley. And my boyfriend at the time uh, was studying with Harold Paris. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that name? At oh all? yes, actually, uh, someone was working on a book that mentioned him and came across. I was doing a fact check, and there was a name that was there that I wasn't sure of. But I said, "Okay, look, that connected to a whole bunch of people." <laughs> okay, well, Harold was mm -hmm. amazing. 
you know, he was also a high tech. He he was mm-hmm. he was a draftsman in the tradition of uh, you know Rembrandt or whatever. You know, he was a very finely trained artist. But then he had a passion for technology, and he mm-hmm. worked in plastics mm-hmm. and vacuum forms, and he had this huge loft space mm-hmm. filled with chemicals and and you know things brewing. And guess what? It was right next door to Don Buchla's big mm-hmm. loft. <laughs> so I'm visiting Harold Paris, and he adored me. You mm-hmm. know, I don't know why, but he, he was a mentor for me. He was a crazy guy, uh, and my boyfriend Joseph was his assistant. Mm-hmm. And Harold said, you've got to meet my neighbor. You're in music. This guy is amazing. You've got to meet him. And one evening, Harold took me over to Buchla's. <laughs> and that was the turning point of my life because I saw, you know, the, the, it was the Mecca, right? The Mecca of, of modular synth <laughs> was right there. And so I decided at that moment that I was going to work there when I finished graduate school. You know, graduate school, uh, what was it? Uh, at that time, Berkeley was considered the number one school in, in music, mm-hmm. uh, graduate. But it wasn't for composing, really, mm-hmm. because the emphasis was on musicology. And as a practical matter, being a composer, when you're facing uh, you know, your career, and you're a woman, too, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what do you do? You know, can you teach? What do you do? Yeah, everybody, my whole life thought that if I, when they find out that I'm a woman in music, assume that I taught piano, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there weren't a lot of options. So, uh, you know, it was a complex revelation to encounter electronic music Mm -hmm. because it came, you know, answered a lot of uh, problems. Mm All right, and now you mentioned a little bit about this, but uh, what led you to the Stanford AI Lab and folks? Well, um, a, a graduate, a fellow graduate student at Berkeley uh, asked me about this. He said, oh, there is a program in the summer at Stanford. And he said, uh, I want to go. Why don't we go together? It mm-hmm. involved getting up at like 4.30 in the morning. We, got, we had computer time. You know, in those days, computers were not easily available. Mm-hmm. And the AI lab had a certain number of PDP-10s. And we were not the most important people. And we were given a slot that went from like 5 to 7 a.m. <laughs> so my friend, and I wish I could remember his name now, uh, we decided to go together and to make the drive. And it was so fun because... You know, it'd be dark out, and then you'd go through the salt flats mm-hmm. and see all the colors and the salt starting to sparkle mm-hmm. as the sun, you know, was trying to come up. And, uh, you know, it was a real adventure. And if had it not per- been for this friend of mine, I don't think I would have, you know, made that trek mm-hmm. on my own. It was not an easy, it was not an easy uh, commitment to mm-hmm. go there. But it was life-changing. 
because both Max Matthews and John Chowney yeah. <laughs> were there. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, what, what the, the guy that was doing the notation... Uh, uh, oh, gosh. Not Severo Ornstein. He was the other guy. Um, well, I, I will remember his name. Mm-hmm. And he was also there. There were three. Mm-hmm. And the, the notation person was really pioneering work in computer, you know, musical notation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was, I believe, the summer. Honestly, I think I watched John Chowning do the <laughs> FM, you know, algorithm there. Mm-hmm. You know, we were studying Jean-Claude Rousset, mm. who also had, you know, this uh, FM mm-hmm. approach. But it wasn't, I guess, as complete or as, uh, you know, I've never quite understood why John's version of FM mm-hmm. became the definitive one. It's more or less because he got to the patent office first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love John. <laughs> there were a couple other approaches that were around the work. Right, right. <laughs> That's how I always thought. But, you know, I love John. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, he was interesting because he, he was uh, really a percussion player. Mm-hmm. Computers were not his, you know, native domain. Mm-hmm. Max, on the other hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, Max lived in the, the brain. And Max was the most delightful, charming, mm-hmm. childlike, brilliant crystal clear brain you know that you would ever want to meet so mm-hmm. it was such an, an a privilege to work with him uh and you know i still miss him oh yeah i do too yeah. <laughs> and i only i only met him once and i exchanged tons of emails we're very lucky that his last grad student sasha who is now down in new zealand is sort of maintaining the whole uh, radio baton heritage. Oh, wonderful. And so there are four or five batons that are working, and she's scanned all the original uh, papers and such, and the diagrammatics, and she's getting us one for the museum. And I was like, that's just, that's a very max thing to do. She said, yes, I think it is. Oh, <laughs> that's so wonderful. Yeah. I love to see the generational continuity oh, yeah. of these things. Yeah, and it's great that, you know, I love what I love about Max is that uh, he had that first wave he was a part of, and then the second wave in the 70s, and all the way up to about 2000, he was still putting out really important work. Yes. I was uh, such a great guy. I'm so glad I got to meet him. He was at the opening of the exhibit. Oh, good. And that was the only time I got to meet him. Oh. Uh, yeah, my, my coworker and I spent more or less three hours just chatting with him and John. (laughs) You know, and I did my comeback and I did that concert after Mm -hmm. 40 years, you know. His kids were in the audience. Oh, really? Yeah, they came backstage. Two of them. I mean, I I was just very touched Mm -hmm. by that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I've... uh, We got a couple of his books that someone, uh, a Stanford prof had a collection of Heinlein novels, wonderful science fiction books. Oh. And I was going through, and oh, this one was from John McCarthy, this one was from Don Knuth. 
Max Matthews, we're going to have to keep that on my desk so that I know where it is at all times. Okay, did any actual music, specific pieces come out of your time at Stanford AI Lab? Well, my very first recording that I did was called Voices of Packaged Souls, Mm -hmm. and it was a collaboration with Harold Paris, the sculptor. Mm -hmm. He had an exhibit in Brussels, Belgium, Mm -hmm. and... uh, he asked me to do a recording of the voices, voices of packaged souls. So his exhibit were, you know, these souls that he had made out of plastic materials. Mm-hmm. And he gave me uh, 10 or 13, I can't remember, voices to compose the sound of an eye tearing, the sound of an old man loving, the sound of heat, the mm-hmm. sound of cold. So he was the poet who requested these mm-hmm. unusual sonic poetries. Mm-hmm. And I realized that album at a radio station in Berkeley, KPFA. They gave me the studio from midnight to, you know, six in the morning. And I used snippets of the uh, music that I did at Stanford, mm-hmm. also uh, snippets of Buchla and snippets of just music concrete. So it was a, a combination of all three things. Mm-hmm. That was a limited edition LP, but then it was released recently by Finders Keepers. Mm-hmm. And the original had a Mylar cover that was a piece of artwork by Harold Paris, and I think each one was uh, original. And uh, I just saw one online for $2,500, you know, this, this, they're rare. Mm-hmm. I, I don't even have one. <laughs> I had the re-release oh, okay. that Finders Keepers did. But yeah, so I used my Stanford, uh, you can tell when you listen to that which parts are from the computer. Mm-hmm. It has a very distinct oh, yeah. you know, sound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because at Stanford they were still running the PDP-10s at that point, and... They hadn't gone to the Samson box yet, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it was all punched cards. Yeah. Oh, I coming in the next day, you know, <laughs> and getting your, you know, the result of your, it was not real time. Yeah, yeah which, which makes things more difficult. <laughs> well, you know, it was really difficult. I have to say that one piece, I was so excited because I, you know, had programmed this whole piece and I forgot to give it one digit in the volume. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing computed, but I had no volume. <laughs> and so I never could hear it. It was like such a lesson. Well, that that's an art piece right, <laughs> right. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so do you find there are any differences between working with a synth and working with a piano from the concept point? Like, do you approach composing for each differently? Completely. And, you know, this is a complex question. Mm-hmm. And the whole, you know, brings us into the realm of what is an instrument. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the history of instruments, I mean, it's just an amazing thing that an instrument eventually distills into a kind of ongoing identity. You know, the piano had many, many iterations before it settled 
into this 88 key thing mm -hmm. that had a you know the certain mechanical action uh, and I think we're getting to that stage now with electronic music it's starting to distill mm -hmm. but it's still very much in the formative stage and in both cases you're talking about a performance instrument but you know it's also realize you know performing and composing are different parts of the brain really mm -hmm. not not necessarily but they're different departments and you can take a piano and compose by hitting it with a hammer or putting paper clips in the strings <laughs> and you know maybe that has nothing to do with the original evolution of the instrument which involved uh, developing a technique how can you access this potential that's here living in this construction and developing the technique happens almost immediately usually you know the technique that uh, people you know first developed in the harpsichord and then they brought it over to the piano but the piano was different mm -hmm. and then you had this burst of uh, skill that developed list you know taking it to the absolute uh, edges mm -hmm. of, t of people can't do that today you know I mean it's uh, so developing technique and then the composer has as an option exploring the limits of that technique. You know, I could write something that required you to play, you know, notes, you know, 60 notes in three seconds or whatever, you know, because there is a technique that will satisfy that. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going on a rant here, but oh, I no, think... Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> okay, well, what I've noticed in composition is that um, there's an ego issue that happens. You know, when I was in graduate school, I saw that composition was not really based in what I valued, which was uh, emotion and uh, melody, that they were pushing the envelope to see how complex it could be. Mm -hmm. So you'd ask a pianist to play, you know, seven against 13 and whatever it was, but it was always, look at how, uh, you know, difficult my music is to play and the performance actually learned how to do it you know it did happen you know they could do amazing things but I don't think the motivation of composition should be that mm -hmm. uh, so there was a revolution and I was part of that revolution which was to simplify the approach all the composers that, uh, you know, of my generation, the Philip Glasses, and, you know, they went back to, like, we don't need to impress anybody with mm -hmm. the complexity of what we're doing. Let's, let's just get back to what we want to say. What is worth communicating emotionally? And for me, that happened at the same time that I was discovering electronic music. Mm -hmm. So I look at somebody like Philip Glass and I say, Philip, you know, why don't you use machines to do your music? 
I think there was something in the psyche of, uh, you know, our time, which, you know, in, infiltrated this idea. It's the same way it did in the Baroque, where you had machine music. Mm-hmm. You know, you had that motor rhythm. Yeah. That came back. We don't know why it came back. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly related to the capabilities of an electronic music machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Buchla, who was my mentor, and he proselytized me, and I worked for him. Mm-hmm. And I have been a, a, you know, a proselytizer ever since <laughs> of his concepts. And they allowed the design of his instruments, and we never call them synthesizers. Mm-hmm. They were called electronic music instruments. And instead of porting over, you know, a different tradition, uh, he really invented from the ground up a new possibility for interacting and producing a language, a musical language. Mm -hmm. What is that language? Well, it's actually... Uh, you can't separate composing from working with the instrument. It is a composing in the moment uh, piece of equipment. You can bring to it, you know, this is, this is why Switched On Bach, you know, was a disaster, you know, because they, they took a different tradition, mm-hmm. realized it electronically, and that had nothing to do with the true nature of these new instruments. Mm-hmm. So it was keyboard music. It came from a Baroque era that, again, was you know kind of like a mechanistic period mm-hmm. in music. Uh, but it made people think that these new instruments were keyboard instruments. So the whole thing took a left turn. But Don Buchla, you know, never went that way. Mm-hmm. And how did you play the bukla? What were the, you know, uh, techniques and the thinking behind it? And it does relate to, uh, you know, what evolved in modern composition, which I objected to in many ways, was that um, people looked for systems. Mm-hmm. They said, let's get out of tonality. Let's, let's try some kind of rule system It'll get us out of that. You know, so you had Schoenberg and you have 12 tones and mm-hmm. you had rules and it was like, this is how you do it. Yeah. Then you had um, Boulez and people who, that said, no, let's use cells. Let's mm-hmm. get these little I- identities of three or four note cells and use those. But everybody was looking for a system outside of traditional harmony how do you organize? How do you organize? Now, I never liked systems. So I was, you know, steeped in classical music. That was my roots. I'm Italian in consciousness, and I loved melody. And I, so I simplified. Uh, I didn't go the route. I was not popular in graduate, graduate school because I didn't want to do that, you know, Here's the thing. Complexity 
is easy. Once you start working in an electronic music instrument like the bukla, mm -hmm. being complex was meaningless. Because if you wanted, you know, something impossible to play, you just <laughs> move the dial and, you know, <laughs> and there it was. So all of that became meaningless. And then what did have meaning? Well, I developed techniques that were based around pitches. And in a way, they relate to serial music because you start with a core of, you know, a counterpoint line. So I would have four lines. Mm -hmm. And then with the bukla, you can access them in, in the, any way. So horizontally, vertically, obliquely, mm -hmm. because of this thing called the multiple arbitrary function generator, mm. which was the first thing that he built that actually had what you could call a computer mm. inside. So it had, you know, the, the normal MARF, as they call it, had two simultaneous control systems. You could only look at one at a time, mm. and it allowed you to do a lot of things. <laughs> right? And, and mm -hmm. we didn't have a memory mm -hmm. back then. You know, this was before. There was a computer in the sense that um, you could uh, control uh, operations by programming them. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't store them in those days. Now I have one that allows me to store. Right? It, the digital has, you know, infiltrated. Mm -hmm. For better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah good, good arguments on both sides. <laughs> so, it, it, like the way I've always heard it sort of described, often sneeringly, is that you had Moog, which was a performance instrument. You had Buchla, which was a studio instrument. Absolutely not. Which I don't quite see that. Ooh, 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 ooh. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't say I agreed with it. <laughs> no, it's the absolute 180 degrees opposite. Really? Yes. Interesting. Yes. Bukla, always. The very initial uh, inspiration for the Bukla came from uh, Mort Sabotnik, right? Mm -hmm. And Ramon Center and what, you know, they said, give me something that'll make a sound. Mm hmm and I found this out, um, you know, this different in out, difference in outlook uh, when I was performing in Berlin and Mort was there and we sat down and had a discussion. And I, for me, because I came along five years after Mort, mm -hmm. I worked for Buchla five years after. And by that time, Buchla had completely separated himself from that initial initial idea. Really? The initial idea was make me an instrument that will make an interesting sound. I will record that, then I'll make another interesting sound, and I will record that. Mm -hmm. And so it was initially a studio instrument. Mm -hmm. But Buchla right away went off on a different tangent, which was a live performance instrument and he's the only one that did that mm -hmm. 
everything he designed was based on being able to manipulate these controls in real time. His instruments had incredible feedback. Mm -hmm. You look at a Moog, you don't know what's going on in there. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> you look at a Buchla, and he had you know, hundreds of lights that told you everything. The intensity of the control voltage, where the sequence was, where's the, you know, and, and Buchla's whole, you know, his color coding for the cables, the color coding for the jacks, everything was meant to feed back to you in the moment mm -hmm. so that you could play it live. I never knew anything else. I lived in that world of live performance and I never recorded anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, a few things, happenstance, you know, but uh, live performance was the domain of the booklet and a, not a keyboard mm -hmm. approach because the keyboard was, as we would say, an inappropriate interface. Mm -hmm. A key was mechanical, which was unnecessary. <laughs> uh, it produced one result, typically, whereas in the bukla, I can hit one key and get any number of results. It can locate a sequence, it can stop something, it can start something, it can transpose something. A key is a command mm -hmm. that has multiple possibilities. So the, the Moog, you know, these two guys, Don and Bob, started out, I mean, Don is, you know, given credit for being the first. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in those days, the distance meant a lot. Yeah. So East Coast, West Coast, everything was compartmentalized back then, everything. And Bob, originally, he didn't think of it as a keyboard instrument. Mm -hmm. It's just that when faced with the chasm of, it really, you had to have been there. <laughs> the public did not have a clue they couldn't even imagine. It was like, you know, when they said Columbus came, the natives didn't see the boat because they had no concept of a boat, so they couldn't even see it. <laughs> and that's what it was like. You you could, you know, I could perform the bukla. My audience could come up and engage me saying, well, you know, what is this? And I'd say, well, this is a machine that's actually making the sound. And they'd say, well, where's the tape recorder i said no no it it's not recorded it's you know it, mm -hmm. and i would get so frustrated because nobody nobody understood uh i need more water and i'm mm -hmm. tethered can oh, you yeah. get that bottle yes. Thanks. but i wasn't sure i'd have anything to say to you today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you just push my button in it and it all comes out right it's like it's like going to the shrink <laughs> well that's the best thing that's what i love about oral history is that you get these great stories uh, people dumping their brains <laughs> into them one of my favorite stories is there's a uh, baseball oral historian who was recording in the 60s the last people who played in the 19th century mm -hmm. and his methodology was he would hit record and say so what about baseball <laughs> and they would give him six eight ten hours worth of material <laughs> god i really didn't think i'd have anything to say it's so funny 
No, you've got you. Like, <laughs> and we're we're only like, oh, <laughs> not quite that big. Yeah. <laughs> um. Mm. So about uh, tell me okay. about. Oh. Well, okay, well, that, that mm. distinction you made about Moog being a performance instrument, there are a few more things to say about that besides mm. the feedback, the Buchla designed in the machine, yeah. the compactness. Mm-hmm. So Buchla, from the beginning, made an instrument and was absolutely responsible for the portability of it at the same time. His machines came in suitcases. Mm-hmm. You could move. You could take that and you could get out of the studio I have a Moog downstairs right now. It's not going anyplace. <laughs> you know, they were not transportable. Yes, you had a few large rock groups like, you know, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer mm-hmm. that managed to get those things yeah. moved. But no, it was not a performance instrument. And in the sense of, you know, the, the, um, the new possibility of electronic music. Mm-hmm. non-keyboard music mm-hmm. and to this day it, it's the Moog it, they're, they're well I, this is not a denigration it's, it is an observation that because the root system I've been working with, with Moog mm-hmm. uh, company yeah. because you know Buchla passed away and also because those uh, that polarity disappeared mm-hmm. Uh, I did my first comeback concert for Bukla under the auspices of Moog. Mm-hmm. Moog asked me to do a concert wow. for Bukla. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with Moog as a Buklaist <laughs> for almost two years. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get them to see the performance mm-hmm. possibilities. Yeah, and I it would seem as if as time went on and the the Moog in particular in studio performance started to be replaced by things like Fairlight and the uh, the sort of the off-the-shelf synthesizers that they found that uh, within that community the community it was the Buchla and the Moog users were much more alike than <laughs> than the others uh, when I interviewed Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo a couple weeks months ago now God uh, he was very much of the what we wanted to do was make tones and how we made those tones wasn't as important to us as our ability to so we had hundreds of systems right and that I think that sort of sensibility started to pop up in really the 70s in the late 70s right. and that was neat to see uh, he has some great stuff he has Yes's old little vibraphone thing oh. well see all that's great and um, God knows I've done you know dozen albums using you know MIDI <laughs> uh, but that is not what the book club is about it's not about the tone it's not about the sound it's about the way the sound can move mm. interesting yeah and from the very beginning Buchla's work was always quadraphonic mm-hmm. it was spatial and movement was, you know, uh, one of the, you know, given parameters of a sound. So we need to look at the Bukla as, you know, this guy did all the groundwork. 
he worked at this. He never left Berkeley. Mm-hmm. He did that morning, noon, and night. You know, he was the uh, the Da Vinci of musical instrument design. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, a, you know, we, we're looking at it's electronic music is this gargantuan domain. Mm-hmm. And to me, the most, this is just me, me, the most important part is looking at it as a new compositional tool instrument. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a synthesizer. And, you know, I mean, it's, and, and mm-hmm. now we're having a revolution. So there are a lot of Eurorack systems. Mm-hmm. And that's a start. Yeah. All right. So that's a minute. Um, going to go for some of your commercial work because there was some really neat stuff there. Um, so talk to us about the Coke bottle sound. Okay, let's see. So I was, I had come to New York City with just my bukla. Mm-hmm. I came there to perform at an art gallery, a live bukla concert at the Bonino Gallery in 1974 mm-hmm. for an exhibit, exhibit by Ronald Mallory, who was another sculptor mm-hmm. that I met through Harold Paris, mm-hmm. who worked in Mercury. Ooh. Yeah, he does beautiful kinetic mercury sculptures. Wow. And he invited me to perform. I, I got to uh, New York a little bit early so I could rehearse. I had just my bukla. Uh, I found a rehearsal space and uh, fell in love with New York. Mm-hmm. So I never wanted to leave after that. And I put everything, I had been in L.A., I put everything in storage. I didn't have money to bring it. And I decided to live in New York. Well, I had no money. So I lived uh, I lived actually on Philip Glass's studio floor. Oh wow. In Soho. <laughs> How did I get to Soho? Oh, um, oh, I remember how. Um, Ron Mallory was friends with the art critic of Time magazine, Robert Hughes. Oh, okay, yeah. So Robert had this gargantuan loft, and he took pity on me, and he said, I can give you, you know, a corner of my loft if you need a place to live. You know, it was in the name of art and, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I I moved into Robert Hughes's loft. And he kicked me out before too long. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I, I brought in a piano. Somebody gave me a piano. And he said, uh-uh-uh, no piano in my loft. And uh, then I went to live on Philip Glass's, you know, Philip lived right down the street. Mm-hmm. Bob was at uh, Prince Street and Philip mm-hmm. was on Green Street. Before Soho was Soho. Yeah. And then I lived with Ernette Coleman for a little while, who lived right next door. (laughs) And then I found an apartment for $75 a month on uh, Canal Street. Mm -hmm. It was so loud I I couldn't even hear the phone, but 
uh, I was poor and I needed money and I had done some commercial work while I was still a student at Berkeley. Again, my boyfriend's neighbor in Milwaukee, you know, was doing some commercials for Macy's. Mm -hmm. And I, those were my first ever commercials. I did them at Mills College, secretly, mm -hmm. and made money. I was astonished. They actually paid me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> then I started doing more commercials here, and I ended up going to L.A., and I worked in films, and I worked on television, but I hated LA, and I went to New York to do this concert, and decided to stay there, and then I was starving, and so I found a book called The Red Book, which listed all the advertising agencies, and I picked the top 20, the biggest ones, mm -hmm. and I said, I'm starting at the top. So I would call those 20 agencies consistently. You know, I'd call, I'd say, I'm a composer, you know, I can make, uh, can design sounds, I have a book club, what's that, you know. And, and I would go on the merry-go-round of this, and I did get some work, and the biggest agency was McCann Erickson. Mm -hmm. And that guy stood me up three times I would get it finally get an appointment I'd show up at the appointment and they'd say he's not here the third time this happened I said where is he he had an appointment with me and they just like well he's in the studio I said where's the studio I said Times Square I went to Times Square um, I found the studio. I marched in there. I, I said, where is Billy Davis? They said, he's in the studio. You can't go in. I went and I opened the door and I walked in. I said, you had an appointment with me. And he goes, oh, oh, oh you know, who do you think you are? You know? <laughs> and he was a black producer from Detroit that the agency had brought in to bring, you know, all the R&B and all the, uh, he, had, he had been one of the initial people at Motown. Mm -hmm. So he knew all the Motown artists and he was bringing that to Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. The way the story is, you ask me, I'll tell you. Um, he, they were working on a commercial mm -hmm. and they had this blank space and they wanted to put something in there. And he said, can you do something in there? And I said, yes. He said, well, what do you need? I said, I need my bukla. He said, go get it. So I went and got it. And I brought it back and I set it up. And uh, my brain is going a thousand miles an hour. You know, what am I doing here? What What is this going to be? And, and I thought to myself, if I can make a sound that doesn't fit in a particular key, they can use it any place. Mm -hmm. And that's how I came up with the idea of the bubbles. There was no visual at this time. It was, it was like a radio spot. Mm -hmm. 
And I thought, as bubbles have no sonic, you know, key. And so I started with that. It was very easy to make that on the boot club because mm-hmm. I had a great filter. Mm-hmm. I had, uh, you know, I could pick off the overtones of a sub audio waveform. And then I had a lovely filter that I could frequency modulate with more white noise to make the fits. Mm-hmm. So I, I made this sound and before long, they used it in absolutely every Coke commercial all over the world. And I got, you know, it was like hitting the jackpot. <laughs> so I got, I, it would like opened up a, a world I'd never experienced. Yeah. Yeah. And so you were sort of the, uh, the queen of the audio logo. Yeah. And so exactly. what were some of the other ones that you had done? Oh my God, I did them for everybody. Yeah. Uh, I did, you know, first of all, all the high tech people like Atari, mm-hmm. they, they wanted them. I, I have a bunch on my, you know, on my uh, website. Uh, mm-hmm. I did them, gosh, I mean, I'm the worst person to ask. Um, <laughs> but I did AT&T, mm-hmm. I did uh, Atari, I did, uh, you know, General Electric, uh, versions of that. I didn't write the General Electric logo, but I produced versions of it. Um, I did uh, Merrill Lynch. I did uh, a lot of car companies. Mm-hmm. Um, all the big clients. I was the Fortune 500 sound designer. Wow. Oh, that's good. Um, now, gonna go to... So, you did some scoring for films. Was this before or after your move to New York? It was after. I moved to New York in 74 and I got the film job I guess in 80. Mm -hmm. The Coca-Cola was before that. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I mean that that was a big moment really because as it turned out in hindsight I was the first woman to be hired to score a major Hollywood feature. Mm -hmm. I didn't I didn't know that at the time, and also I did not know that it would be another 14 years before another woman was hired. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wow. You have no idea. You know, the, the root system of, what do, you, what do we call that, you know, uh, prejudice? Mm-hmm. Prejudice is probably a pretty good, <laughs> pretty good number there. I watched. I mean, I was really an ace at scoring to picture. That was my talent. You know, I could, I could marry sound to picture, in mm. this amazing way. And I watched many, many guys get hired that couldn't do even close to what I could do. We lived, and to this day, I live as a woman, and I've had a lot of firsts and a lot of success, but I am accustomed to being invisible on some level because we, we adapt. We adapted to that. We were invisible. I was lucky because I had a unique talent in those days. I had no competition. I came in and I started doing something 
that nobody else really was doing. I mean, there were a couple of guys that were doing logos for, there was Eric Sade, mm -hmm. who did one for CBS or NBC, I can't remember, the three chimes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. But anyway, that that's another reason why electronics was such a, a good, you know, thing for me, because I I was able as a woman to enter a professional field without competition mm -hmm. and succeed. It was a land rush, and you got a good claim. I got, I got a claim. <laughs> So I pity, you know, the girls now, they're always saying, well, you know, how do I get ahead and how why do I do this and what do I do? And it's like, you know, you're in a much different environment than I was in. I, I don't know, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Now, I've never seen it, but tell me the David Letterman story. Oh, my God. Yeah, <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> well, mm, I guess this was early on because it was he was just starting. Mm -hmm. And it was a daytime show. Yeah. And I was hot stuff then. I had a lot of requests for TV appearances and all of that. And I was not excited about going on Letterman. It meant getting up really early and I was very busy. And I was working on my first album. And that's all I cared about, my first album. And. Uh, the reason I did commercials was to finance the album, which was completely electronic. Mm -hmm. So my, you know, my goals were very clear. And uh, I was probably halfway through my first album, so I would do that on weekends. And it was time for me to start to find a record deal, because in those days, you absolutely had to have a record deal. You couldn't make a CD. You couldn't do it yourself. You had to have a label. Mm -hmm. So I'm invited on this show and I say, well, I don't want to do it, but I'll make a deal. If they let me perform a piece from my new album, then I'll go on and be the WizKid and do that stuff. And they said, okay, they'll do it. So I wrote out charts for the guys in the band and I knew them all because I used them in commercials. You know, mm -hmm. they were studio musicians. Yeah. And we were all set to play. You know, I had my MC4, I think it was, the Roland. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go on David Letterman, and it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great, he's so funny. <laughs> and he's so in the moment. You know, it's so alive. It is live. You're on live TV, so yeah. it's very exciting. And there were a few things that happened, like one time, you know, I was reaching for the the mod wheel on my Prophet 5, mm -hmm. and I didn't, there was a piece of paper over it, and I didn't see it, that it was in the wrong position. You know, so I'm aware of all these things that were happening, that I recovered, and I did all this stuff, and it, 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 it all worked, and I had my, you know, my voice box, mm -hmm. which was a wonderful invention. It was a flat rolling cart of about, you know, 10 rack mount units mm -hmm. that were all interconnected and had a patch bay so that I could use my voice to control anything wow. and also modify voice. Because in those days, electronics didn't have a lot of dynamic. 
there was no well my second album was called velocity of love because velocity was just coming in <laughs> and so if you used your voice with an envelope detector or whatever you could get more dynamic yeah um also the horizontal rack was a great invention <laughs> but anyway um so i do the david letterman show and we get to the end and i'm a I'm pushing the button in the Roland sequencer to start my part of the performance and the guys are in the band are ready and nothing happens. When I push the button, nothing happens. Well, what happened was that the memory was volatile mm -hmm. and they had unplugged it. Oh. So from the time I had rehearsed, mm -hmm. I went into the green room, I come back out and, and, and the memory's gone. Well, I reloaded it instantly you can hardly tell there was a break of about two seconds where all this you know intensity of you know realization went on and then they cut to commercial so I never got my you know my what my part of the deal which was to play my piece mm -hmm. on TV but it was a lot of fun yeah. uh, excellent all right um, now, tell me about Seventh Wave. The record label? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's named after my first album, mm -hmm. Seven Waves. And, uh, you know, I moved from New York City in 1992. I moved out here. I had just, uh, I was just in the process of doing an album uh, that was orchestral and piano called Dream Suite. I was an artist on private music. I had never signed a record deal. My first album, Seven Waves, was licensed. I need more water. Um, yeah, we can just leave the bottle over here. <laughs> yeah, <may> as well. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thanks. Yeah, my mouth is like, I have cotton mouth. Like, oh. mm. Well, see, far inland locations tend to be very dry. <laughs> um, let's see. Where were we? Uh, seventh Wave Record. You okay, right. Uh, so I licensed first in Japan, JVC, then I licensed to Atlantic Records in New York, and uh, then I did my second album. I licensed to RCA. Um, so I, I knew from the beginning that these albums were my children mm -hmm. and that nobody else was going to own them. Then my third album came along and my buddy from Tangerine Dream, <laughs> Peter Bauman, who was a synthesist, right, mm -hmm. said, hey, Suzanne, you know, help me get my label started. Don't worry, you'll get everything back. <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah, often the first <laughs> words, too. <laughs> so, before I knew it, you know, I was on private music. Private music was sold to BMG. BMG was sold to Sony. Uh, I wanted out. And when I moved out here, I saw that possibility of, first of all, I met my husband. Mm -hmm. I was married. For a while, seven years, I met him in this house. 
and he was an attorney, Joe Anderson. And uh, I had left the big time when I moved out here. I got rid of everybody. I got rid of all my clients, got rid of uh, my manager, my agent, the whole infrastructure of the big time career. I came out here because I had an early breast cancer and I thought it was time to just completely overhaul my life. I came out here for a year, but in this house I met my husband who was a lawyer and one thing led to another and uh, he helped me restructure my life. So we fired everybody and uh, then it came to getting out of the record deal and he engineered that for me. So my that album, the uh, orchestral and piano, mm -hmm. turned out to be the first release on my own label. My label, I named Seventh Wave after my first album, Seven Waves. And, uh, you know, it's still still my label. Right now I'm in a, I'm starting a second label, uh, Atmospheric, to deal with my electronic recordings because it's a different, it's a different audience. Mm -hmm. My label tended to be instrumental, piano-based, electronic. You know, I've always used, you know, electronics, but this new, uh, identity is real live bukla. Mm -hmm. It's a different language. It's not it, It's not orchestrated. It's not melodic uh, in the traditional sense, mm -hmm. although it is pitch oriented. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you returned to piano sort of for the first time after a while. And how was that transition? How did you make that transition? And was it was it jarring or was it like coming back to an old friend? Well, you know, I always say, now I say never say never because I always said never. You know, mm -hmm. when I played the Bukla, the 10 years that I, my formative years in the Bukla, I did not touch a piano, even though I'd grown up with the piano mm -hmm. because I didn't want there to be any confusion about the inappropriateness of keyboard. Okay, so I was 100% mm -hmm. Bukla. I moved to New York and, uh, you know, things happened. MIDI came in. My bukla was not understood. I couldn't find an audience for it. You know, I know Tangerine Dream got someplace in Germany with it. Mm -hmm. And I almost had an agent. But, you know, I ran into problems. Like, I was supposed to play at Lincoln Center at one point. I got it you know, a possibility there. And I own, I play only in quadraphonic. Mm -hmm. That's the nature of the beast. And they wouldn't let me put up four speakers. And so I wouldn't play. And then I thought, oh God, okay, I need a theater. So I started a thing called the Electronic Center for New Music mm -hmm. to uh, build theaters. And they were gonna redesign Alice Tully Hall and so I thought I will influence them to make a new design for a theater that will allow electronic music. And they wouldn't listen to me. 
because I was not rich and I wasn't famous. So then I decided to get rich and famous so that they would listen to me and, you know, nothing, nothing ever happened. Um, I forgot what the question was. I just <laughs> <laughs> the return to the piano. Oh, the return to the piano. So, you know, there I was. I couldn't really do the booklet in the way that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And then I started, uh, you know, my third album was Neverland. And this succession, you know, maybe because of MIDI and things became keyboard again, and I was orchestrating, and I started using, uh, you know, MIDI keyboard. Uh, and I had, you know, a breakdown of the Buchla. Mm-hmm. So the re- one of the reasons I left the Buchla was that it broke, couldn't be fixed. Half of it was stolen. Oh. It turned up 22 years later. Wow. But that time it was stolen. Mm-hmm. And I had a nervous breakdown, basically. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't get it replaced. You know, Dawn sent me a music easel and I sent it back. Mm-hmm. It's like I had grown up on big modulars. I wasn't going to play a music easel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now where are we? Now we are at, uh, we're at returning to the piano and. Mm. So third album, Neverland. And then the progression, if you look at the albums, you know, Neverland, History of My Heart and stuff, but at a certain point, Private Music said, this won't satisfy your contract, but would you consider doing a piano album? And I said, really? You want piano? Why would you want that? And I said, yeah, I can do that. Mm-hmm. And so I, they had done a piano compilation, and I remember I recorded two pieces in Yanni's house in L.A. And it was a big seller. Hmm. Piano was a big, big seller. So I thought, well, okay, I'll do this. And it was called Pianissimo. And I recorded at Yamaha in, you know, at the factory mm-hmm. in L.A. on a hand-built disc clavier. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'll just go in and do my performances, and then they can record later. You know, sometimes you play a perfect performance, and they said, sorry, something dropped in the room or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, the phone, I don't know. Yeah. So, I, But the, the MIDI wasn't, it wasn't good enough. The disc was not good enough. Mm-hmm. And so I had to play live. But then we did get to add a little, you know, halo to, mm-hmm. to the thing with the MIDI, simultaneous MIDI uh, channel. Yeah. So, yeah, the pian- that was a piano solo. And then I, well, well my first, the first appearance of the piano in my uh, work was The Velocity of Love. Mm-hmm. Second album, last piece on the second album. And that piece became a huge hit. That was my, that's always been my most popular piece. The problem was that I released that album with RCA and they were sold a month later. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) So I had no distribution. The only reason uh, I got anything out at all was that RCA also had their own distribution, and the distributors were getting such demand for the album mm-hmm. 
that they on their own were starting to you know, distribute it. But the executives at RCA would not even take a meeting with me. Mm. They, at, there I was in New York, they were in New York, and they said, no, 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 no sorry, you don't exist. You're from the old regime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're out. Many stories like that I've heard. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's so amazing. It's rough out there. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me ask actually about the documentary. Right. How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my, my husband, who knew me better than I knew myself, you know, he was... He was brilliant and young and uh, had a photographic memory. And I was always a little bit in the clouds. And uh, he was the first one to come up with the idea that my life might be interesting. And I thought, well, you know, I don't know. Uh, And he wrote something because he's a writer. And then it just died. Right, it wasn't something that manifested or materialized. And then, so years later, two young, you know, I think what happened was that Finders Keepers mm-hmm. released stuff. You know, my early Buchla live concerts. Yeah. I, uh, when they asked me to release stuff, I thought, what? Why? Why would you want to do that? Who cares? And then I thought, you know, it took me like two years to allow them to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I only did it because I thought, well, they're a little label in Manchester and nobody will know. And of course it came out and it was horrible for me because my fan base, I mean, now it's internet, so everything's every place. Mm-hmm. So you see on, you know, Amazon or whatever, new Chani album, and my fan base got excited, yeah. and then they hated it. It's like one star, one star. It's like don't get this. This what the hell? You know, what is this? And I was so shy. I thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm alienating, you know, all my fans. And so I said to Andy, I said, you know, don't use my name. Like don't. But I, I didn't want this out of the bottle, you know. Mm-hmm. And over the years, um, which is about five years, I guess, four or mm-hmm. five years, you know, I, I had to let, let it be. So I don't even know what's going on. I don't put my electronic stuff on my own website. Mm-hmm. I let the universe do that. <laughs> I don't do it. And it's working fine I mean and actually the new kids you know the kids that are interested in the electronic music they're not as compartmentalized as the other generations were Mm -hmm. it's like they're very eclectic for them you can listen to you know quad bukla and then you can listen to you know uh what's what's an album I did what's the last one I did uh, I don't see I don't remember um, uh, see I have no brain left 
if you ask me about the past, I can remember. Mm-hmm. But, you know, anything that's... Um, okay, what's the last album? I'm I trying to remember myself. Um, Your last album. <laughs> mm. Oh, Silver Ship. Silver Ship. Silver Ship. Yeah, Silver Ship. Um, so what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> Um, the documentary about your life. Oh, the documentary, right. Um, so, these two young filmmakers approached me. They were from Texas. And I was happened to be going to Texas to see my family for Christmas, my sister. Mm-hmm. So we had decided to have lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to do the film. They wanted to do a film about me, and I thought, well, you know, if they want to do it, you know, I'm not going to stand in their way. Uh, And I had been approached by other people. You know, there were people that wanted to write a book, and I never felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. Because you're being filtered through the, you know, the identity of whomever that is. Yeah. So, I like these guys. They had completed films. Mm-hmm. They had done. A, I mean, the the previous film was about women wrestlers, so it wasn't exactly, <laughs> you know, a, lipstick and dynamite. N- no, it was. Uh, they made glow out of it. I think. That uh, I. Okay, now I know who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, because all the it seems like all the wrestling documentaries I know are from Texas. Yeah, Brad and Brett. Brett at uh, Window Pictures. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, yeah. I have to write that down. Window Pictures. Yeah, yeah. Those are guys. Good guys. And and you know, parenthetically, um, my boyfriend at Berkeley was a filmmaker, mm-hmm. and he never finished a film. He worked on the same film for 50 years. Never, He's still working on it. Never finished. So I was impressed when I saw that these people actually completed projects. Mm-hmm. That was a big plus. Mm. I felt safe with them. Now, we didn't always agree. I mean, it was low budget. They came up here. I thought they were coming up to meet with me and talk to me about stuff. No, they came through the door with the camera running. <laughs> I said, wait a minute. <laughs> You know, there was no budget, so they just uh, we need footage, we need footage. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, cool. <laughs> um, and they they emphasized the electronics because that was you know the comeback had started, mm-hmm. it, but it had just started. It wasn't like really in full blown you know presence yet. So we had a little bit of a disagreement. I said, well, wait a minute. What about all the the orchestral albums, the piano albums, the you know, studio albums, it's like all you care about is, you know, the electronics. Mm-hmm. And it ha- has been that way. Mm-hmm. People, I guess it's more captivating, the idea of a, of a woman with machinery. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Though in my case, it's only because of the scope of my museum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get back to, like, the gist of this whole thing. We're talking computers. <laughs> exactly. Um, now, what about Sunergy? Uh, that's the new thing you're that your collaboration. What happened was that um, 
out of the blue, I met a young girl here in Bolinas. You can see what a small town this is. So, uh, you know, you don't meet anybody here, right? And, mm -hmm. and uh, I met a young girl here who said she was a, she played the bukla. Wow. Yeah. So I thought, wow, okay, because I needed an assistant. And I said, you know, she was like 20 something. And so she started coming, you know, a few hours a week to be my assistant. And uh, she had been trained at Berkeley College of Music, mm -hmm. which I'm kind of working there now, you oh. know, as a guest uh, artist. Mm -hmm. And uh, she proposed a project. She said, I know this guy, you know, the young people are all plugged in. <laughs> They're just all plugged into everything, everything that's going on. So she said, um, this guy, you know, from New York does a series of an older artist and a younger artist. Mm -hmm. We have to wait for that. Right. Let me hear my, that wasn't my wife texting me saying the house is burned down. Right. <laughs> nope. <laughs> It's so cheerful. <laughs> I bet the kids are cheerful too. Sometimes, yes. <laughs> one of them is very, very cheerful. The other one's very sweet. Oh, how sweet. But, uh, you have to show me pictures. Oh, I will. <laughs> too many I have. Because we still have lunch to have. Are That's you getting true. hungry? Actually, I am. Oh, good. But we're well, just about wrapped up. Oh, okay, okay. So, okay. yeah, this is in fact the last question. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> Remind me again where we are. Sunergy. Oh, Sunergy. Yeah. So she brought this fellow out here and he did a project with an older artist and a younger artist. And he had many volumes of this. It was called Revenge was the <laughs> label. R-I-V-N-G. Uh, and so I said, yes. I said, we could do that as a concept. And then I never had time to do it. <laughs> and at a certain point, she said, well, I'm moving to LA and I was having about to have foot surgery and one thing led to another and I said okay if we're going to do it we're going to do it this weekend because mm -hmm. that's the last possibility we have so she brought her little bukla she played a music easel and mm -hmm. we set the machines up on top of the piano and uh, you know do you want the long story or the short story I'll take the long story. Right. So, you can see where I live. Mm -hmm. The sun rises right there outside my window. Every morning I sleep there and the sun comes in. I'm not a morning person. But I was, I wanted to write the sunrise. Mm -hmm. And this had been going on for years. And I would get up with the sun. It was beautiful to see it. And I would go over to the piano and come up with ideas for the sunrise and nothing worked first of all the energy system of the sun is very slow and you know a large slow gesture really mm -hmm. with a lot of sustain in it and the piano is a percussion instrument yeah so just about the moment where i realized that this was an electronic piece that it needed to be electronic is when this you know proposition appeared mm -hmm. now I was very protective of my son piece 
mm-hmm. because I'd been working on it for five years, even though it wasn't fruitful. But we were in such a you know rush, and this was such a sudden thing, and we had to organize it. And so I said, well, let's do the sunrise. And then we structured, you know, we took those same, that, that paper I showed you, the report to National Endowment, mm-hmm. that had the four sequences. We used those. Okay. So I gave her two sequences. I took two sequences. And we connected our machines, mostly through, you know, tempo. Mm-hmm. And we could change, you know, and the whole thing was done live. Wow. Yeah. Because that's where I am. You know, my whole approach to Bukla is live. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, d- we did that album, and uh, I was always a little bit reticent about even talking about it because. Uh, I guess maybe on a, I don't know why, you know, maybe on some level I wasn't ready to let go of the sun, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Got complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Got complicated. But anyway, it's a nice album. Mm-hmm. I never talk about it. <laughs> and uh, what I'm doing now, most people don't even know it was live. And mm-hmm. what I'm doing now, I've been going around the world, you know, doing live book club quad performances. Mm-hmm. I have about 22 of them. Wow. And I'm starting a new label called Atmospheric to release them. I just worked with a fellow who was at Moog about um, a system, you know, quadraphonic LPs existed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we lost quad a long time ago because nobody had the content. Mm-hmm. So now this is, I'm getting like a second chance here. It's like, oh my God, the Bukla's back, Quad is back. You know, (laughs) I can finally do, you know, what I wanted to do. So, um, you know, there's the uh, design of the decoder. Mm -hmm. I guess it's being made in Australia. And there was a guy in France that had the design and a guy in Australia makes them. So... I'm going to do that. I'm yeah. going to do a, a, so it'll be vinyl, a two-track that then gets decoded mm-hmm. into four, and everybody has, you know, everybody has five one systems now or five whatever yeah. in their home theaters. Meanwhile, spatial design is mm. getting huge. Oh yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm meeting with um, Meyer Sound this week because we're going to be doing a project mm-hmm. oh, cool. at the next Moog Fest that, that is spatial. Uh, I'm happy with Quad. Mm-hmm. I can control it. You know, I can design it. I can manipulate it, and it's wonderful. So I'm not uh, as excited about doing these, you know, multi, multi, multi speaker things. Mm-hmm. But um, we'll see. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Okay. Stop. Good. Okay. Fantastic.